Chapter 29 of Harry D. or Making It Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Aaron Stone. Harry D. or Making It Out by Francis J. Finn. Chapter 29 in which Mr. Lang obtains further data concerning the missing money, and Tom bids us farewell. That very night I dispatched two long letters, one to my father, the other to Mr. Lang, our lawyer, giving them a full account of the interview between Mrs. Dorn and myself, and asking Mr. Lang to study up the records of the servants who were in my uncle's house at the time of my visit. I insisted particularly on his finding out, if possible, whether my uncle actually had $50,000 in his possession. The following day I wrote again to my father, who, during my minority, had charge of the property and monies accruing to me, and submitted a plan for putting out a certain sum of money in Mrs. Dorn's favor and for giving her children an education. My father's letter came very promptly. He assented to all that I had proposed, and sent a bank check to Mrs. Dorn on his own account. But it was some weeks before I heard from Mr. Lang. His letter contained news of importance. Dear Sir, have traced up Caggett's record. He became a coachman in St. Louis, spent little, then a car driver, which position he retained for a year, when he was discharged for drunkenness, got another position as a carriage driver, and spent all his money on liquor. The last year and a half he has had odd jobs off and on, but nothing steady has become very seedy, tramps occasionally. One of my clerks managed to meet him, treated him several times. He got this much out of him, that your uncle deposited his money in the bank every three weeks. I think out of this we can trace up the exact amount in his possession that night. If you have anything further to communicate in the matter of Caget, let me know at once. Yours respectfully, Walter Lang. P.S. If your father has no objections, I will now put an expert at examining your uncle's books and papers. Your uncle seems to have been a methodical man, and I think will have no difficulty in tracing up all the money he took in subsequent to his last visit to the bank. I shall write Mr. D. at once for permission. On the very last day of school, I received the following. Dear Sir, after an examination of five days, expert reports that your uncle had at least $43,570-odd in his room on the night of December twenty-third, 1800. It was nearly three weeks since his last deposit. The detectives who took the affair in hand first seemed to have taken everything for granted. It now transpires that three men, James Nagel, a stockbroker, Howard Wilmot, a farmer, and Cyrus Smith, a wholesale grocer, were each aware that your uncle had a large sum of money about him. Nagel, on December 23rd, accompanied by Cyrus Smith, paid your uncle $20,000 on account in a stock transaction. Wilmot, who was in the library at the time, waiting for a receipt for $6,000, paid for a piece of farmland, tells me that your uncle casually remarked that he'd keep all the money three days longer. "'In this house?' exclaimed Nagel. "'That's risky.' whereupon Mr. D. gave a growl. "'It'll be riskier for the man who comes near me. I sleep light, gentlemen, and besides the money under my pillow, there is a knife on the chair beside my bed. Besides, the house is locked pretty tight. While the presence of the dagger on your uncle's chair accounts for you using it, the fact that these two men, I exclude the farmer, knew that your uncle had money under his pillow makes it necessary for me to study up their record.' 
The stockbroker will give me most difficulty. That kind of business is so queer. I have already looked up the case of the cook and the housemaid. They have not taken the money. There remains to be investigated, then, the cases of the stockbroker, wholesale grocer, and coachman. The latter two I can dispose of in two weeks, but for the first I shall need at least two months. Yours respectfully, Walter Lang. It was midsummer when his next communication reached me at our lake in Wisconsin. Harry Quip and I were engaged in a wrestling contest when Tom, who was dressed in a traveling suit, came out with a letter. Mr. Harry D., cried Tom. Harry did not enjoy the pleasure of throwing me just then, for I broke away at once, hastily took the letter from Tom, and broke open the envelope. I ran my eyes down the lines. Listen, boys. Dear Sir, Coachman and grocer are okay. It now only remains to trace up the stockbroker. If he be innocent, things are about as dark as they were before. Yours, Walter Lang. The detective is wrong there, said Tom quickly. If your broker and servants and your grocer are all innocent, it follows, Harry, that you not only killed your uncle, but also stole over $43,000 from yourself. So you're wrestling, are you? Continued Tom. I've just weighed myself, 145 pounds. You see, I want to know how much I change in the novitiate. I'm five feet seven and one half inches high, and, if I can believe my looking glass, the best looking fellow in the crowd. Take a walk, said Harry. I suppose you think you can throw the whole crowd of us. That's what, said Tom. Come on, catch as catch can, said Harry. I'm in my best clothes, said Tom apologetically while taking off his coat but I'm willing to ruin the whole suit rather than stand that. The next moment, he and Harry were pulling each other about in the approved style. The contest was brief. If you had six shoulders instead of two, Tom remarked over Harry, I'd make every one of them touch. Tom arose, gazing ruefully at his cuffs. They'll think I'm a tramp when I arrive home tomorrow to bid them all goodbye. Come on, try me, said Percy, and I'll fix you up so that they'll think you're an exiled prince. Et tu, Brute? said Tom, and flew at Percy. The struggle began forthwith. Presto, Tom went down, but sprang up like a bit of India rubber, and the spinning and swelling of muscles and quick changes of position were resumed. Percy came to the ground next, but was up on the instant. Of the two, Tom was the stronger, but Percy the more supple. After seven or eight minutes, both were glad to call the contest a draw. There they stood, two panting, blushing young men, looking, one would think, as though their whole lives were bound up in athletics. Yet these two friends were about to part, each under the noblest of aspirations. Even as they were wrestling, the carriage which was to take Tom to the depot was being drawn out from the coach house. Percy now took off Tom's hat, which Tom had just picked up and put on, and producing a pocket comb, proceeded to give Tom's hair a presentable appearance. In the midst of these operations, a happy thought struck me. Tom, I exclaimed, if I ever recover that money, which you stole yourself, interrupted Tom, I'll put out an interest, and if you should need it for any particular purpose, just let me know. Tom thought for a few moments. I'll tell you an idea I've had for years, he then said. What we want just now is a good Catholic magazine for boys and girls. Instead of having Catholic writers growl at the books boys read, we must get them to write something that they will read instead. 
American boys don't care for the translated French stories, and I don't blame them. They want stories about themselves, and that's why they go to Oliver Optic and Harry Castleman. Instead of running these writers down, our writers ought to go to work and give us the American Catholic boy. He is the best boy in the world. In ten years or so, who knows, but we might use that money to bring out just such stories. One good Catholic story will do more than a dozen volumes of snarling against books that boys ought not to read. It is better to fight for the good than to rail at the ill, said Percy, employing one of his favorite quotations. Precisely, but as I'm going to take a vow of poverty, it wouldn't be just the thing for me to count upon having a big sum in the bank at my disposition. Percy is just the boy to take such an enterprise in hand along with you, Harry. Tom, you've given me my vocation, cried Percy, his face illuminated with a smile I shall never forget. It has come upon me like a flash. Oh, you've no idea how I've prayed and prayed for light. My confessor told me not to think of taking the religious state till my mind could clear. It has not cleared till now. But now I think that God wants me for just such a work. I have plenty of money, and, if my father has no objections, I shall invest fifteen or twenty thousand dollars and let it accumulate till I'm ready to start your magazine, Tom. I'm with you, Percy, I cried. No matter whether that money is recovered or not, I'll put in twenty thousand dollars out of my uncle's estate. This was no boy talk. Percy's father was a man of immense wealth. As for myself, my uncle had left me a fortune of some three hundred thousand dollars. How quickly the time passed as we discussed, in all the glow of roseate youthful hope, the prospects for our magazine. But alas, the hour of parting came. I still see our dear Tom standing upon the rear platform as the train moved away, waving his hand and smiling till a curve shuts off from our view, one of the noblest, bravest boys. We were all on the verge of tears. Harry Quip changed our emotions in this peculiar way. Taking an ancient slipper from beneath his coat, he threw it after the train and burst into sobs. The slipper was too much for us. We all relaxed into a smile. Tear-stained it may be, yet a smile. Quip was indignant. You're a set of fools, he sputtered. I wouldn't give Tom Playfair for a carload of fellows like you. End of chapter 29